Before you start this episode, a quick advisory. Today's episode does cover sexual assault, child abuse, and self-harm. This episode may be a lot for some listeners, and that is completely okay. You are always welcome to come back next episode. Listener discretion is advised. June 29th, 1991. At St. Mark's Church in Ontario, Canada, a young 20-something Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka had just finished tying the knot at their heavenly fairy tale wedding. At this wedding, there had been a rented horse and carriage. Carla had been wearing a very high-end white ball gown with puffy sleeves. They had been taking happy couple photos, and all of it had been a dream. Although... These two have been harboring a very dark secret behind their gentle smiles and beautifully planned fairy tale wedding. On this same day, a 14-year-old girl that had fell victim to these two lovebirds had been discovered by canoers at a nearby lake. This is the case of the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. I'm your host, Kendall Hudson, and welcome to another season of When the Light Goes Out. When you think of Barbie and Ken, you're probably thinking, Hi Barbie, hi Ken, but unfortunately that's not what any of this is about today. This case is truly something out of a horror movie, and if you can't believe me, just wait till the end of this case. There's definitely, without a doubt, a ton to unpack in this case, but to get to the meat and potatoes of this case, we have to start where it all began, with the convicted rapist and serial killer, Paul Bernardo. Now, who is Paul Bernardo, you may ask? Well, Paul Bernardo was born August 27, 1964, to parents Kenneth and Marilyn Bernardo in Ontario, Canada. Well, kinda. Paul's family was, you could say, pretty stable financially. The family was considered higher middle class, and although money was great, the family dynamic was far from it. His mother, Marilyn, did not have the approval of her father to marry another man she had actually been in love with, because apparently her father didn't appreciate his educational background. So she settled for a man by the name of Kenneth Bernardo. Eventually, they married, and they moved to a nice neighborhood in Scarborough. Scarborough is a district of Toronto and um, Ontario, Canada. Now, Marilyn would give birth to a son and a daughter with Kenneth years into their marriage. And then to Marilyn's surprise, she was pregnant with another baby boy. Only, that baby boy didn't belong to Kenneth. This child was the product of an affair that Marilyn had with the man her father didn't approve of. This child would be named Paul Bernardo. Now, depending on who you ask, you could say Paul's illegitimate father, Kenneth Bernardo, 
definitely impacted what horrors Paul would commit later on. Although Kenneth knew Paul wasn't initially his, he still accepted him as a son. Now, Kenneth Bernardo was still far from a decent father and human being. Kenneth, being the creep that he was, once fondled a young girl and then he faced court for this, which was dismissed. He would then loiter around the neighborhood, peeping through young women's windows, and in 1975, he had been charged with child molestation. All the while, rumors began to spread that he had molested his own daughter, being Paul's half-sister. If you're asking yourself, where was Paul's mother in all this, Marilyn? Well, she remained estranged, but married to Kenneth. And kind of became depressed and very in denial about the whole thing. Paul, on the surface, didn't seem to be affected by the dark and disturbing ways of his non-biological father, or lack thereof. He was actually a very bright kid. He got great grades, and around this time, around the age of 10 precisely, Paul had made close friends with two other boys in the neighborhood, Van and Steve. They all joined Boy Scouts, actually, and they were just happy friends. You can't say that's not pure. But it was truly around the age of 16 years old when things really started began to spiral for Paul. Paul's mother had finally revealed to him that his father, Kenneth, was not his biological father, and that he was the child belonging to another man during her extramarital affair. This piece of information really started to shift in Paul's behavior. Paul would start referring to his mother as, quote, a slut, a whore, and she'd in turn just call him a bastard. And if that isn't bad enough, only soon after, Paul's first girlfriend, Nadine Brammer, would decide to break up with him, and she would pursue his close friend Steve instead. By the way, yes, Steve was his friend that he joined Boy Scouts with as a kid. This enraged Paul so much that he'd set all the things that she'd given him on fire. Eventually, in the fall of 1983, at the age of 19 years old, Paul began college at the University of Toronto, where he'd begin going out to bars and clubs using his good looks and charm to get them to come home with him, where he would later humiliate and beat them. Within the following college years, Paul would date several girls, but they wouldn't stick around very long considering his abusive and sexually assaulting tendencies. By 1987, Paul graduated from university receiving a job almost immediately after as a junior accountant for an accounting firm. And at the time, he was still dating. He was dating a girl by the name of Jennifer Thompson. I couldn't really find a specific reason, but something terrible went down that had Jennifer threatened to call the cops. And for that, she was smart and she left him. But not long after, Scarborough, Ontario really began to experience a string of some pretty horrific crimes. Forewarning. May 4th, 1987. A 21-year-old woman simply getting off at a bus stop early in the morning is grabbed by Paul from behind and pushes her to the ground performs anal sex and fellatio, but at the same time threatening her that if she goes to the police, he knows where to find her. And this only happened blocks away from her parents' house. 
Paul then commits his second rape of a 19-year-old girl on May 14, 1987, right in front of her home. Two years later, the number of sexual assaults significantly climbed from a couple sexual assaults to 11 sexual assault cases. Three more years had passed, and Paul Bernardo would have raped and assaulted as many as 19 young women between the ages of 15 and 21, generally around bus stops, although one had been reported to be a 15-year-old girl being sexually assaulted in her own home. These attacks were induced with verbal abuse, horrible threats, and brutal beatings, all to discourage the woman from going to the police. Several victims were able to escape and fight their way out, and Paul would at a point become a suspect, but sadly, he never became an official suspect. Scarborough had been left terrified by this unnamed rapist wandering around town. Later on in 1990, some victims would be able to give their attacker an accurate description to the Metro Police for a composite sketch, although not even that really helped as a composite sketch truly was just so average because he was truly that boy-next-door type suspect. A lot of the young men fit the description in the area. Newspapers would eventually dub this culprit the Scarborough Rapist. Although this one man inflicted copious amounts of fear and rage on an entire community, he did not act alone. Enter Carla Homolka. Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka met in October of 1987. At the time, Carla was 17 and Paul Bernardo was 23. Carla was visiting Scarborough to attend a veterinary conference, and as it's told, Paul and his friend Van had crossed paths with Carla Homolka and her friend Debbie Prudy in the lobby of a Howard Johnson hotel. Instantly, Paul and Carla hit it off. Later that night, they met up to have sex, only to escalate their attraction for another, after Bernardo had found, unlike other women he had dated, Carla found pleasure and supported his dark and twisted sexual fantasies. Paul would then give over his number, and from there, they would grow a sadomasochistic relationship. So, the question is, who is Carla Homolka, and what does she have to do with this case? Well, Carla Homolka, aka Carla Teal, which will come into the story later, all accounts was a pretty average kid. She was born May 4th, 1970, in Ontario, Canada. There was not a ton I could find on her parents or much of her background, although she did come from a pretty standard, well-adjusted family. She was one of, I want to say, I want to say like maybe three other siblings. She had two other younger sisters, and she may have had a brother, but I'm not quite sure about that. Don't quote me. In school, specifically in high school, Carlo was recognized and seen as that intelligent, popular, pretty blonde girl that you would see walking down the hallway and couldn't not acknowledge. And she loved animals. Soon after high school, she began work at a local vet clinic. And like I had said before, Carla met Paul while visiting Scarborough for a veterinary convention, something she should have just stuck with. Between the time that Carla and Paul met in their first act of crime together, Carla had really become infatuated with Paul. She sent him notes saying things like, 
do what you want to me and would become almost slave-like to his deviant sexual likings. Forensic psychologist Dr. Catherine Ramsled shares in a documentary I had watched called The Disturbing Case of the Ken and Barbie Killers, Born to Kill, that she believes Carla didn't just change after meeting Paul Bernardo, but that something was already there in her that Paul had seen and triggered, and she was more than ready for someone like him. I definitely would have to agree with her, and if you don't yet, Believe me, you will by the end of this episode. You will. Now let's go back to 1990. After years of investigators not knowing who the Scarborough Rapist was, like I had said, they did get tips from victims enough to drop a composite sketch resembling many blonde, blue-eyed Canadian boys in the area. And one did stand out specifically being Paul Bernardo. Paul was questioned. During questioning, he was calm, cool, and collected. He was asked if he had any issues with women, to which he said no. He mentioned having a girlfriend being Carla Homolka, and with his charm and soft demeanor, he was just dismissed. He was being one of 700 persons of interest. Their rapist walked with no further questions. Although, to be fair, on the police investigator's side of things, They got Paul's DNA willingly, but it was a time when DNA analysis was early stages, so at this point, they had something, but they couldn't do anything with it. That DNA just sat on a shelf for two more years. Not long after two detectives had interviewed Paul, one month later to be exact, Homoka continued boasting about her and Paul's relationship, saying things like, Paul and I are happy together, we're happier than ever, and he's so great, so romantic, but that's just my typical honey. In reality, this couldn't be further from the truth. Three years into the relationship, they were engaged, and Paul was hanging around the Homoka family 24-7, but Paul was getting pretty bored of Carla. He also was very dissatisfied with Carla not being a virgin before meeting him. To make up for this, he allegedly demanded that Carla bring him a virgin instead as a Christmas present. I'm going to give you yet another warning because this is really rough. Well, since the start of their relationship, Carla had taken notice that Paul took a specific liking to her 15-year-old sister, Tammy Homolka. It's been noted that he once even had Carla act like she was Tammy during sex. With that said... Carla had decided for Christmas she'd offer up her own baby sister to Paul. On December 23, 1990, the Homolka family were hosting a holiday party. The morning of, Carla stopped by the St. Catherine's Veterinarian Clinic, where she had worked to steal sedatives believed to be holothane and hallucin. Later on that night, After the party had died down, Carla infused the animal tranquilizer into her sister Tammy's eggnog and brought her to a downstairs bedroom where Paul had been waiting for her. Now, this was not the first time they attempted to rape Tammy. They tried drugging her spaghetti once before with Valium, but she woke up as soon as Paul began sexually assaulting her. So, to guarantee she wouldn't this time, for good measure, Paul held a holothane, I think it's called halothane, coated rag, to her face, and 
The couple thereafter took turns raping Tammy while unconscious. All the while, they videotaped the horrific event. While unconscious, Tammy had began choking up vomit, to which put the two in a panic, hiding the drugs before calling the ambulance. Unfortunately, Tammy would never regain consciousness. Hours later, she had been pronounced dead at St. Catherine's General Hospital. Although the autopsy took note of mysterious chemical burns to Tammy's face, the death was ruled accidental and a result of alcohol poisoning. The drugs in her system were never detected, and Tammy was only a week away from her 16th birthday. As if Tammy's death wasn't enough, Paul had been caught stroking her hair during her open casket funeral. The murder of Tammy Homolka would only elevate Bernardo and Homolka's terrifying crime spree. Jump to a year later, 1991. Paul and Carla move in together in St. Catharines, and they get no better, just way worse. On April 6, 1991, Paul commits his 12th rape on a 14-year-old Jane Doe. June 7th of that year, Carla deceives a 15-year-old Jane Doe she met at a pet store years earlier to her and Paul's home to drink and hang out, a girls' night. Only then, she is drugged by Homoka. The two take turns in the rape and videotape the entire assault. Like Carla's sister, Tammy, she too had been choking up vomit, but this girl had been resuscitated by the couple. On June 15, 1991, a 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey went out to hang with some of her friends. She lived with her mother and stepfather at the time in Burlington, in a pretty nice suburban neighborhood. Her mom and stepfather were a little strict, for good reason. If she had passed curfew, they'd definitely be the type of parents to hold her accountable. Nick Prawn, the author of Lethal Marriage, says this was also around the time a student at her high school had passed away, so already the community and students along with Leslie have been mourning their fellow classmates' death, and they were just all keeping close tabs on each other. This specific night, Leslie did come home rather late past her curfew, and usually she'd use her key to get into the house and explain her reasoning of past curfew, although this night, Leslie had misplaced her key. Now, normally, Leslie would be able to knock so her parents would be able to let her in, but for some reason, she decided not to. I don't know, maybe she was nervous to explain herself. It's unknown, but this would sadly be the last unknown whereabout of Leslie Mahaffey for the next three weeks. The community and the police left in complete shock. Again, everyone... What happens next is extremely horrific and gruesome. Please advise. According to a later confession, that night, Paul had just happened to see Leslie walking down the street when Paul had pulled over. Allegedly, Leslie had asked for a cigarette. He had led her to his car, blindfolded her, drags her into his car, and brought her home where he met up with Carla. The two videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing Leslie in such terrible ways while blasting Bob Marley and David Bowie. 
The videotape was later deemed so graphic and disturbing that the police only allowed the audio to be played in court. I strongly, strongly suggest not finding that transcript. It is out there. It will definitely ruin your life. I have personally stumbled upon a lot of things I regret seeing and hearing in my in my days of research, but the transcript is top of that list. This brutal sexual assault would continue on for several days. Homoka had continued dragging her over this period of time, which eventually had led to Leslie's death. Now, there are conflicting causes of death at the trial, which, spoiler, the couple go against each other later on, and we'll talk about that. But in terms of the cause of death for Leslie, Carla claims that Paul has shrinkled her to death, and then Paul claims that Carla fed her a lethal dose. If you ask me, I personally feel like it was just a lot of everything over time, but I can't go by that. Now, get this. They kept Leslie Mahaffey's body in their basement, and the following day, Carla's family came over to her house, her and Paul's house, for a Father's Day dinner. Yeah, so if you're thinking about that, Leslie's body was in this basement while their family was over. After the family had eventually left from dinner, Barnardo had went to a hardware store, and he purchased several bags of cement and the two dismembered body parts of Leslie and encased them in cement. They then disposed of the cement blocks encased with her body parts into the lake of Lake Gibson. This brings us full circle to the murderous couple's wedding day. If you think you've heard a lot so far, just wait. Not long after the wedding, during after-school hours on April 16, 1992, Bernardo and Homolka were driving through St. Catharines looking for potential victims when they passed by Holy Cross Secondary School. They spotted 15-year-old Kristen French walking home. They pulled into a close parking lot of a nearby church, and that's when Homolka had got out the car, pretending to need directions with a map of the city in her hand. While Kristen had been distracted looking at the map helping Homoka, Bernardo came up behind her with a knife and forced her into the front seat of the car. Homoka kept her subdued by pulling her hair back from the back seat. When Kristen hadn't returned home, her parents immediately knew their daughter was met with foul play and notified the police right away. It only took Kristen 15 minutes to walk home, and she was never late. Within 24 hours, the search team had been assembled, but all that had been found was a shoe recovered from the church parking lot she was taken from. Think about how chilling that is. Unfortunately, it was too late. That Easter weekend, the sadistic couple had once again videotaped their torture, rape, and sodomize of Kristen French. Her nude body was discovered strangled and battered on April 30th, 1992, in a roadside ditch in Burlington. Her body was found washed with a piece of her hair cut that Homoka later admitted that was kept as a trophy. Just to note, Carla Homoka and Paul Bernardo never intended to let Kristen French leave alive. They knew that they'd take that girl and fully intended to kill her. That's sad because, I'm sorry to say, this story kind of has a frustrating end. 
it's going to piss a lot of you off. It was not long after that police started to learn that Leslie and Kristen's death are connected ironically. May 1st, 1992, Van, Paul's best friend, notices from the news that there is a similarity between Paul and the Scarborough rapist. And he is probably saying, uh, I should probably tell the police by this point. And he does, which really catches the attention of the police because this is the same guy they brought in years ago in regards to the string of rapes around Scarborough. So the police bring Paul in to question him about where he was the night of Leslie Mahaffey's disappearance and Kristen French's disappearance. They let Paul leave once again, but this time they are sure they have the guy. They just need to have a little more probable cause to catch him on. Police finally release the composite sketches to the public and immediately tips come pouring in. Now we are really getting down to the final leg of our case. In December of 1992, Carla Homoka's family finds her severely bruised and beaten up. She insisted that it was nothing more than a bad car accident. But in reality, Paul had beaten her with a heavy metal flashlight. At this point, Carla knew it was kind of over. The next month, because of DNA advancements, a match was connected to Paul to being the Scarborough rapist. During this period, Paul was put under heavy surveillance and Carla was brought in to be questioned, which she learned he was actually a Scarborough rapist, which I kind of questioned myself. Did she not know this before? I guess not. So to protect her own ass, Carla admits to her family members that, uh, Paul Bernardo had been abusing her and she had helped him commit multiple crimes to which her family insisted that she go to police and she did. If you're catching on to Carla, Carla planned to do whatever it took to get a lighter sentence and the only way she planned on doing that is by painting herself to be the helpless damsel in Paul Bernardo's crimes. Paul Bernardo had officially been arrested at his home on February 17, 1993, for his rapes and murders where, days later, he was taken from St. Catharines to Scarborough to be charged with a number of accounts. Side note, his father was also convicted of sex-related charges weeks earlier, eventually getting nine months to, in prison, I think, and three months in um, probation. You ask me, I think he should have got a life sentence, but I'll move on. Now, Carla wasted no time getting a lawyer and aimed for a plea bargain. In exchange, she testified against Paul Bernardo. And there it is. Where has all the love gone? Probably two years worth of wreaking havoc, only to be pinned against one another. Carla had two counts of manslaughter and went through psychological evaluations, but police decided instead of charging Carla with murder, they'd use her as a witness to get Paul on first-degree murder. She led investigators to all the key areas of the house where DNA evidence proved that Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French had been, as well as other damning evidence, including those videotapes. 
Oh, and by the way, Carla's bail had been set at $110,000, to which her parents used their house as collateral to bail her out so she could be released. And she was. On September 1st, 1995, the jury found Paul Bernardo guilty on two counts, each of kidnapping, aggravated assault, forcible confinement, one count of offering an indignity to a dead body, and first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years, only to go back to court to face more charges for the Scarborough rapes. Carla Homolka pled guilty to two charges of manslaughter and was sentenced to only 12 years in prison in result of her plea bargain on July 6, 1993. She was eligible for parole on July 6, 1997, decided not to apply, although, as of July 2005, she had been released from prison and currently is walking around free today. She tried changing her name, but she was denied, so she now goes by Carla Leanne Teal. And she does have children of her own. And that is the chilling case of the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. There is so much that I even get to touch upon on this case. It's such a big case. You can still look a lot up. I have all my citations within the show notes, and I thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you're listening to. Tell your friends, your family, anyone you need to know and needs to know about this show. Make sure to tell them. I cannot wait to bring another great episode to you next week. And for now, we both see you when the light goes out. <laughs>